Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So I, I thought of a few different people to dedicate this message to. One was Michael Morgan for the green shirt that I'm wearing, uh, but I passed on that. Uh, the second was... Uh, uh, Dave Tarr, uh, and you'll understand that since he's a swarthy fisherman from Maine. Uh, and, but I decided that baby Josiah uh, deserves a dedication. I mean, every little child needs a, a message dedicated to him. And what better one to have dedicated you than the stinking fish? <laughs> a study in the life of a fish master from Galilee. So uh, this is... This is a serious message, even though it has a rather interesting name. And you're going to see that it's not just me trying to come up with a funny name. Uh, This is a good name. I mean, this really is a good name for this message. My dad had a quote all growing up, and I realized that it was from Ben Franklin. He never quoted, he never said, this is Ben Franklin. He always made it sound like it was his quote. But guests, like fish, begin to smell after three days. Now, whether or not you agree with that, I just, I couldn't help but stick it in to start out the message, because we're talking about stinking fish. And what's interesting is in history, there's this very important city that many of you have heard of, but have never really thought much about. And uh, it's a city called Nineveh. Nineveh is the place that Jonah, when he was spat back up on the shores of most likely the Tigris River, uh, went to and preached And so he didn't really want to do this, though. If any of you remember the story, the last place on earth he would ever want to go to was Nineveh. So Nineveh just happens to be, in its its term, in the Phoenician language, the the letter N, which is pronounced Nun, uh, actually means something. It's a placeholder for an idea. It means seed or air or, get this, fish. And so the concept of Nun in this city's name is Nunavah. And so it actually means the house of the fish, or fish within the house. So if you could imagine uh, what it would be like to live in this city, if if guests are like fish and after three days they stink, well, could you imagine having fish in the house that you can't get rid of? It's interesting because Nineveh is a picture of our life without the sign of Jonah. Without the prophet who comes, we have serious stinkage inside. And it's a stink that you can't get rid of. See, I'm going to weave in all sorts of stink into this message. However, the great thing about this message is to eradicate the stink. Nineveh. It's the capital city of the ancient Assyrian Empire. So a lot of us think of Nineveh as a nation, when in actuality it was merely a capital city. But when you say Nineveh, it was the equivalent of saying Jerusalem or Washington, D.C. In other words, it's symbolic of the entire nation. So it's the capital city of the ancient Assyrian Empire, termed by the prophet Nahum to be the blood city, actually bloody city. And it was also said to be the city of three days journey. It would take three days. I don't know if this was talking about walking the circumference or was walking across, but it would take three days to walk it. That's a huge city. So this was a city that was built upon war, bloodlust, conquering. And the lusts of what we would term in Christianity, the lusts of the flesh. Now, I could say the lust of the fish, but that would, you know, be too much of a play on words. But that's what it is. It's a city located on the eastern shores of the mighty Tigris River, and a city whose very name indicates the idea of a fish in control of the house. Now, that sounds totally bizarre. I mean, who's going to name a city that? A fish in control of the house? There's something about a fish and this city. Isn't that interesting that this city just happens to be associated with a fish? Well, that shouldn't be lost on you as we progress here. The Ninevites, they're controlled by the lusts of the flesh. This is, you've never seen a city, a nation, so controlled by bloodlust, 
by sexual indulgence, they were given to it. They would literally show no mercy upon those that they were uh, taking in, in battle. They would show no mercy uh, to anything that would stand in the way of what they craved. This is a very dangerous, it's why it's called the bloody city. It's literally, those that ruled over this city were called the king of kings. So you need to realize that when Jesus Christ is described as the king of all kings, he's the king even over that. The place ruled by the fish, yeah, the place ruled by the flesh, uh uh-huh. He's captain over that. That's going to play into what we're going to describe today. So it's controlled by the lust of the flesh. Ishtar was its goddess. But Ishtar, the goddess of war and sensual indulgence, that's what she was about. That's who ruled the city, is the object of their worship. When you make that your worship, you're not doing very well as a city. However, they would say the opposite. What do you mean we're not doing well? They controlled the known world for a hundred years. What do you mean we're not doing well? Well, you might have a season of fun in your life too. However, it will come, a day of reckoning will begin to show itself in your life that you're actually not in control of the house. Something else is. Something else is controlling you. The moment you try and change directions, the moment you try and mend your ways, you want to do it different. You don't like living like this. You can't change. The greatest revival recorded in the entire Bible. Do you know where it took place? Nineveh. Of all places, it happened in Nineveh. Now, I'm going to say a minimum of 120,000 wicked men and women repented in the house of the fish. (laughs) Now, The reason I say a minimum is we actually have no idea how many. The very last lines of the book of Jonah, it simply says that there were 120,000 in Nineveh that did not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. That's that's what it says. So we know that there's at least 120,000 that don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, which either means everyone in Nineveh is an idiot, or it means it's talking about children. So just children in Nineveh may have been 120,000. In other words, it was a mass revival of the entire city. And this is the most dark and depraved city on earth. And a prophet, get this, that doesn't even want to be there, doesn't even want them to repent, doesn't want them to receive mercy, preaches. And literally the worst thing happens in Jonah's mind. They repent. And then God shows mercy on them. And Jonah was mad. Isn't that an irony in this? The greatest, most effective prophet in the history of the world wasn't happy about the results. How did this happen? How is it that men and women, without even a desire for God, would turn with such radical abandon towards him? The Bible doesn't actually give the answer to that question. Now, it does, but it doesn't give it in the book of Jonah. In other words, all we know is that Jonah preached. They repented. We don't know what he preached. So what happened? Well, we know something because of the New Testament and the writings in the New Testament that refer back to Jonah. However, even that is somewhat mysterious. The Bible simply says that they were given a sign. They were given something, a sign. Matthew 12. But he answered and said unto them, this is Jesus speaking, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus is literally saying, you will receive a sign, but not the sign you're looking for. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. Jesus is bringing one singular sign in in the generation in which he lived. He gave one, and it's called the sign of Jonah is what he called it. About three or four different times in the New Testament, It's referred to, Jesus saying he'll bring the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So you were impressed with Jonah. You were impressed with Jonah's results? Yeah, quite a prophet. Quite a legend amongst the prophets. However... One greater than Jonah is here, and he is going to bring the same sign. Well, what in the world was the sign? Strangely, the sign was a man. What? The sign of Jonah. The sign of the man? The sign of a guy named Jonah? Jonah was the sign? Jonah was the sign. How does that work? 
As Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. So just as Jonah, a man, was a sign, how could a man be a sign? That doesn't even make any sense. You know, just as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so will Jesus be a sign. And as Jonah was a sign to Nineveh, so Jesus is a sign. What was the sign of Jonah unto the Ninevites? Well, that's the question that this message begs. What was the sign of Jonah? What was the sign of the man? What did he show? The sign of Jonah. So imagine that we have messengers running through the city of Nineveh. Now, I have different mental pictures for what took place when the fish, because all it says in the Bible is a great fish. That's all it says. You know, people say it's a whale. It doesn't say a whale. It just says a great fish. Some people say it was a shark. It doesn't say a shark. It just says a great fish. That's all we know is it was a great fish. Great. It was big enough in its mouth to be able to swallow a man whole. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty big. That's pretty great. And somehow he was able to spit him back up. And so imagine that we we hear this running through the city. That great fish that controls us doesn't control him. You see, now I'm, I'm taking a, a leap here, and I'm saying that this fish was legendary to the Ninevites. That there was something that symbolized awe and dread. There was a fish that every single one, maybe, in Nineveh feared. And it basically was that which controlled the house. So that city was controlled by something, symbolized by a fish. Okay, it's in their name. I mean, that's all I'm saying. I might be putting a few puzzle pieces together that don't fit perfectly, but hey, it's pretty close. That great fish that controls us doesn't control him. The great fish is subservient to this man. The great fish is at the command of this man's God. The great fish is under this man's God's feet. For this man's God has proven in and through this prophet's restoration back to life from the great fish's belly that he is indeed master of the great fish. There's a master of the fish, and it must be this man's God. He's preaching about this man's God. This man's God is greater than the fish. I know that doesn't seem like a sign to you. Are you going to repent because this man's God is greater than the fish? It doesn't make any sense to you. That's because you don't have a felt need regarding a fish. There's no fish that controls your house. Flesh controls our house. It's interesting how close those are. Now, that's, that's not something I want to... Press. It's just interesting how close it is. They were controlled by Ishtar. We're controlled by Flishtar. Flesh is our controller, our goddess, if you will, that controls us. And we do its bidding. We fear its reprisals. If we don't heed it, then we are doomed because the greatest power in this world is known as sin. Sin has us under its thumb. Sin controls the house. And who are we to talk back to sin? You talk back to sin, sin works its, its revenge on you. Now let's take a closer look at where this sign comes from. This sign originated from somewhere. You know that Jonah actually was born in a certain town in Israel? The name of that town is very unpoetic. It's Gath Heifer. That's not, you know, I don't know how many of you are going to name your child Gath Heifer. Uh, it's just not a very pleasing uh, word or name. You know what it means? The winepress on the hill. That's actually what it means. The winepress on the hill. It's a town of lower Galilee, a few miles from Nazareth. You see, where Jonah originated, where he came from, is actually almost identical to the location of where Jesus came out of. Jesus came out of Nazareth and began his ministry in Galilee. This is not an accident. He is showing the same sign. His ministry parallels Jonah's, or maybe I should say it this way. Jonah's parallels the real ministry of the Messiah to come. Jonah was the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. It's interesting because Amittai means truth. That's what his name means. And Jonah, his name means dove. And so out of the truth comes forth a dove. What you see is the history of the church of Jesus Christ in these men's names. You see that which came out of Galilee, which is Jesus Christ, the truth. 
And Jesus Christ has given us one tremendous gift, and it's even greater than forgiveness. Forgiveness is merely the avenue through which we can access his great gift, known as the Holy Spirit, the dove. And so out of the truth, out of his side flows rivers of living water, which is known as the Holy Spirit. And so what we see is the same principle. It's the wine press on the hill. Isn't that amazing? He comes from Gath Heifer, the wine press on the hill. Calvary. I mean, it's just amazing. It's woven into this very story of a man named Jonah. Galilee. So he's from Gath Heifer of Galilee. Galilee was where the despised people of Israel lived. It was originally uh, a gift to uh, the king of Tyre for his help with the construction of the temple. The king of Tyre wasn't very impressed with the territory, so he sort of just abandoned it. So there was Gentiles that moved into this territory. This is where Jesus grew up. They, they spoke Hebrew, yes, but with a guttural sound. It was sort of like the low-bred ones came out of Galilee. And where does Jesus come out of? He comes out of Galilee, very purposely. He comes out of the lowest place in Israel. So Galilee means the opening of the door, the opening of the flow. So you have a wine press on a hill, and then you have the opening of that wine press, of that flow unto the nations. Where did it start? It starts in Galilee. So we talked about the sign of Jonah. Well, now we have the sign of the heavenly man. Jesus is the one that Jonah speaks of, the one that he represents, the one that he is truly hearkening us to. Everything in that book is showing us a sign. But there's a greater sign than the sign of Jonah. There's a greater revival than the revival of the Ninevites. There's something greater that is coming. So the sign of the heavenly man, his great pronouncement. Jesus is, uh, shows up at what we could call the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's the final day, the great and final day of that feast, which is known as the eighth day. And in the eighth day, they actually had a ceremony where the priest would take water and wine, and he would put them both into different, uh, I can't even remember the, the term, piping, and they would come down. There's a sacrifice at the base of it. And so the water... And the wine would actually mix together. So the water was from the Pool of Siloam. And then you had the, the, the wine that would flow and it would commingle on the sacrifice. And so Jesus, in the midst of this symbol, this, this statement of blood and water. Remember what flowed out of Jesus at the cross? Blood and water flowed out of his side. The sacrifice. You see, there's something that is taking place here and Jesus doesn't want us to miss it. So he stands up in the midst of this feast and makes his proclamation. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But he, this he spoke of the Spirit, which, he, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? This, that was actually supposed to be a put-down. Aren't you of Galilee? Who are you to be talking, you guttural speech character? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. Who are you to say that you are that Messiah, that you provide the living water? You're from Galilee. There's no prophet from Galilee. Oh, yes, there is. Yes, there is a prophet from Galilee. You actually know who that prophet is. His name is Jonah. Isn't that fascinating? The sign that he gives is the sign from the lone prophet from Galilee. And every man went unto his own house. So instead of Nineveh, we don't live in Nineveh. We live in Sinevah. I know, that's, this, this is, that's awkward. But hey, it works. It's the house of sin. Sin is in the house. That's where we live. That's what the Bible describes our location, our habitat, our city. Uh, John Bunyan called it the city of destruction. That's where we live. It's the house of sin. So the messengers of the law run throughout this city of destruction and yell something. So they're running throughout the city and they have a message for us. You are all under sin's control. Its wage is certain death. Your rebellion against God has issued the flesh legal right within your bodies to rule over your appetites so that you cannot do as you want to do. Darkness is your eternal destiny. The grave yawns with eager expectation to devour you and savor your soul forever. So what we have is the declaration of the punishment, the just punishment of the law of sin and death. And all who dwell in this city will partake of that judgment, will partake of that punishment because sin rules this house. And as a result, because of this legal situation we find ourselves in, 
in rebellion against God, the flesh is actually in control. And that which we don't want to do, we do. We esteem doing good things. We esteem righteousness, but we can't perform it. We're stuck in Romans 7, and we long to get out, but something controls this house. The sign of Jonah. So we're going to go through this and contrast it with the sign of Jesus. So the sign of Jonah starts with part one. There's, I'm going to give three parts to the sign of Jonah. Part one, it's the death of the man. So I'm not going to go through the story of Jonah in depth, uh, but you have Jonah rebelling against God. Jonah is called to preach unto the Ninevites and to warn them of the coming judgment. And yet he is afraid that God will show mercy to them. Isn't that an interesting statement? He's afraid that God will show mercy to them. He knows he's good. And he knows he's merciful. And he knows he repents of the judgment that he would bring. I don't want that for the Ninevites. His dad, his name was Amittai, uh, was actually a prophet. And he was one of the sons of the prophets. And he would have lived in the time of Elijah and Elisha if he had survived. You know what it says of the prophets in that time? Basically, Jezebel killed them all. And Elijah actually believed himself to be one of the last ones alive. It's very likely that Jonah was raised in a time period where his dad was massacred by Jezebel and Ahab. And he also lived under the rule and the reign of the Assyrians. The Assyrians ruled for a hundred years, and they devastated the land. They devastated, they raped and murdered the land. And it's very likely that Jonah partook of these things up close and personal. And he wanted judgment. He didn't want mercy. This is a season when judgment must come. He's a good prophet. He wanted judgment. He doesn't want mercy. These people don't deserve mercy. Jonah, go to Nineveh. And what did he say? No, I will not heed you, God. He rebelled against God and headed the opposite direction towards Tarshish. Now, judgment is actually coming on Jonah. All those that are in the ship with him are facing the same judgment. Jonah has rebelled, and as a result, you see the judgment of sin upon that little ship. And everyone in that ship was facing the same judgment. And so to solve this dilemma, it says, But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, so this is Jonah speaking, Take me up. And cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. One man given to save all the other men. Key. One man's life forsaken to save the lives of the others. This is part of the sign of Jonah. You see that this man is given up. He is forsaken. He is given over to death. Now, when you throw someone off a ship in the middle of a vast sea uh, over into stormy gales, uh, guess what? He's a dead man. You never once think again that he would live. He's dead. Jonah died. Now, some of you could say, well, you mean sort of theoretically or symbolically he died. Well, I don't know that I can answer that of how if Jonah actually died, but I have reason to argue, at least, that he may have died. There's a lot of reason I could give for that. But the sign of Jesus, part one, the death of the man. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He says, throw me overboard. Give me over to death. Forsake me over to death, Father, so that they would be saved. You see, you see the parallel. You see the beginnings of the sign. The sign of a man who forsakes his own life that others might live. He dies. The sign of Jonah, part two, the burial of the man. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So there's this fish, this great fish. Now I'm going to say it's the same great fish that Nineveh knows. It's not an accident. In other words, the same fish that holds Nineveh captive. For us in the New Testament, we call it the grave. We call it darkness. We call it the power of sin. We call it judgment. 
We call it the wrath of God, whatever you want to call it, that which controls us. We are under its thumb. Jesus submits himself into that belly, into that creature, that one that is always controlled. Jesus became sin for us. He literally enters into the belly of it. The sign of Jesus, part two, the burial of the man. And when Joseph of Arimathea had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door to the sepulcher and departed. This man's dead. He's been thrown overboard for the sins of the people. Now he's laid in the grave. The grave is the inconquerable symbol to the Hebrew of that which swallows us up and we are seen no more. So he is turned over to the grave. He's stuck in the belly and the stone is rolled in front and it's sealed off. Not just that, but on the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together into Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said, they're speaking of Jesus, calling him a deceiver, that while he was yet alive, after three days, I will rise again. Command, therefore, the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. This guy isn't just dead. But they're ensuring that he can't rise again. Give your best efforts, O Pharisees and teachers of the law. You see, the one that has entered into the belly is going to rise again. You see, there's a sign of Jonah. We have a death and we have a burial. The sign of Jonah, part three, the resurrection of the man. And I cried and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. So this is Jonah talking. The book of Jonah is actually written by Jonah, but the funny thing about that is Jonah does not look good in this book. He actually ends the book a rebel. He's mad at God at the end of the book. It's a strange book. The whole thing is very odd. And I said, or Jonah said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I. Remember how I said I could make argument that Jonah died? Well, just read this. First of all, Jesus died. Okay, we know that. He didn't just swoon. He died. He was laid in a grave. Well, it's possible that Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish and died. It's sort of hard to argue. It's not like... He has to just be sitting there playing cards for three days. We have these mental pictures and these cartoons, but listen to this. And he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I, and thou heard my voice, for thou hadst cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. This is the description of Sheol. The earth with her bars was about me forever, yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption. O Lord my God, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. So in this state, he says, God, I will do as you ask. You give me life. I vow I will go to Nineveh. And then what does he say? Salvation is of the Lord. This is his declaration. His life is not given over to corruption, but instead He's resurrected. He comes forth out of this belly. And then what does he proclaim? Yeshua, Yehovah. Yeshua is the same word as Joshua, which is the same name as Jesus. That was Jesus' name, Yeshua. It's basically like Jesus is, I am, Jehovah. Isn't that an interesting statement? That's like his declaration upon his resurrection. And the Lord spoke unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. The sign of Jesus, part three. The resurrection of the man. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. This is an angel speaking to them. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. It's interesting that even in the descriptions, they say, do you not remember what he said in Galilee? Do you not know him as Jesus of Nazareth? 
You remember where he came from. It's a sign of Jonah. So you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Now I want you to look at a line that most of us don't spend a lot of time observing. The place where, behold the place where they laid him. Now I'm going to go to another version of it here. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Now, for most of us, that doesn't really mean a lot. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Why, why would we care about that? It's like, hey, he's risen. That's all that matters to me. Come, says the angel. See the place where the Lord lay. I'll get to that in just a second. The good news in the streets of Sinova. So when we talk about the good news, first, you must understand the bad news. The good news doesn't ring true unless you first know bad news. And if you know the bad news, if you know that you are under the control of sin, if you recognize that death rules the house, if you recognize that the flesh truly is the operative controlling power of this city, and that the things you want to do you can't do, and you're enslaved, and as a result of coming judgment looms heavily over you, then suddenly good news makes sense. So imagine this good news sweeping through the streets of Sinova. The messengers of the good news run throughout the city of destruction and yell, One greater than the power of sin has come. Come and see. Look where he once lay for three days. The grave sits here, stunned. So I, I'm, I'm giving you the grave as if it has a personality. The grave is sitting there with its jaw, you know, like, cracked open. And a big stick in it, you know, to hold it open. It's like, ah! And, and you, it's like, come and see. Come and see. You guys feared this grave. You guys once feared this grave. Come. Come and look at it. And the grave sits there with its mouth open, stunned, unable to speak, and with gaping wonder it stares in awe at its defeat. For it proved unable to hold him down. You all fear the grave. You all fear this fish. But look. Come. Come and look. It's empty. He's not in there. It lost. It's weaker than him. It's subservient to him. Do you not see it? For it proved unable to hold him down. He has made a public spectacle of all the powers of darkness. For death, our great enemy, has been defeated by him. And the sin and flesh that ruled this house no longer has legal right to master our lives. That's known as the good news. So here's my mental picture for it. You know how we're saying, come, come look. Look and see where he lay. We're like, eh, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, imagine this. Imagine a city that has been terror-struck by this creature, this great fish. Now, Hudson was showing me uh, a picture of some dinosaur fish. You guys ever seen those? And this one, there's like this crocodile-like creature. I don't even know what to call it. That was 40 feet long. It's like the length of this. Yeah, I would, and it was like eating one of these other huge creatures. It's like, I think its teeth are a foot long. Yeah. Yeah, how would you like that if that was outside your back door? So, uh, is the fish coming? Uh, hey, look, everyone on lockdown, the fish is coming. You see, if you had something like that in your backyard, you would be terror struck too. But imagine someone saying, it's dead. It's dead. What's dead? The fish. You mean the fish. I mean the fish is dead. Come and see. Imagine, now, I know it doesn't say this in Scripture. I'm just giving a mental picture of what it would be like to truly understand the good news. Okay, you go down to the beach, to the Tigris, and you've heard this tale. You know, these messengers are running through like, I saw them. The fish vomited them up onto the beach. I saw it. And they're like, oh, yeah, right. Come and see. Now, what would you be able to come down and see? You know, a wave splashing against the shore. It's like, that's not very impressive. Here's what I picture. I picture a dead, stinking fish on the side with its mouth wide open in subservience to the purposes of God in that city. And what you see is you see a body, you know, sort of like a, you know, an angel when you go into the, the snow and you make a snow angel. Sort of like that, where Jonah went... <laughs> and so you see it like marked in the sand. I don't know if there was any sand on the side of the tiger, so you need to use your imagination here. You see sort of Jonah's body there and a whole bunch of goop from inside the, the fish. I, I know, sorry. <laughs> Prepare you for Easter dinner. 
And then you see Jonah's footprints walking away. You see the dead fish, and you see Jonah's footprints walking away. Come and see. Come and see this, guys. This man's God defeated the fish. That's right. You see, when the angel says, come and look, this is where he lay. You thought he was weaker than death. But in fact, but in fact, he's stronger. Come see the great fish stinking on the shore of the Tigris. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Do you see it? See these grave claws? You see this napkin? Isn't that the most awkward word? Napkin that wrapped about his head? Do you see that? I see it. So, who's more powerful? The grave or Jesus? Death or Jesus? Sin or Jesus? Who wins? You see, resurrection isn't just Jesus coming back to life. It's a sign to you. It's a sign of his position. It's a sign of his authority. I will ransom thee from the power of the grave, is the promise in the Old Testament. I will redeem thee from death. O death, I will be thy plague. O grave, I will be thy destruction. And what do we see but the grave with its mouth propped open? The stone rolled away. The grave can't get it back. The grave can't hold them. Jesus lives. The grave is defeated. Death no longer has a sting. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast, be immovable. Why? Because the grave is defeated. Don't you understand the repercussions upon your soul? It's not just that your sin was dealt with and carried, the penalty absorbed. It's that that which has ruled you is conquered. It's not just the effects of sin. The fact that you might go out today and make a mistake and, oh, good, I'm glad you died on the cross, Jesus. But the fact that you no longer need to go out and make that mistake, that you actually have grace, you have power, you have victory over that fish, you have victory over that flesh. That's what the resurrection shows us. It's something more than just the penalty of sin being dealt with. It's the problem of sin being crushed so that we can be set free to live as Christ intends us to live. The sign of the man. What will the sign be? Listen to this. He will prove to master that which masters everyone else. That's the sign. What mastered the Ninevites? The fish. What masters us? The flesh. What masters Jesus? Nothing. All things are underneath his feet. That is why he is our savior. When we turn unto him, we enter into his victory. We enter into his strength. Jesus declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, I want you to see this. Jesus is declared to be something. What's he declared to be? The Son of God. He's declared to be the Son of God. How? Why? What happened that would declare him as that? By the resurrection from the dead. Now, who's declaring it? It says the spirit of holiness, otherwise known as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is testifying, running through the streets of Seneva. And he's declaring, he lives. He lives. The spirit of holiness is announcing the fact unto you. He lives. And as a result, you say, then he truly is the son of God. That's right. All things are underneath his feet. He's exalted to the highest place. He has conquered. Our hope rests in him. So the fishmaster from Galilee. Do you guys remember the, the subtitle of this one? The study in <laughs> fishmaster. I don't remember exactly how I worked it. Fishmaster. You see, there's fishermen and then there's the fishmaster. You see, a fishmaster is over all fish. A fishmaster knows where all the fish are, can deal with fish. And that's what we see. Do you know that the symbol in the New Testament to even the disciples when he's calling his very first disciples what it is? It's his mastery, I know this is going to sound strange, but his mastery over fish. That's what it is. And who's he speaking to? Who's the revelation given? It's to a man named Peter. 
Well, his name was Simon. You know who Simon is? Do you know who he's in the descendancy of? Jonah! Peter! Bar-Jonah! Peter, son of Jonah. Now, he's not the direct son, but the way that they would often say it, just like Jesus, son of David. He's of the lineage of the mighty prophet. Where's Peter from? Galilee. The place of fishing. He's a fisherman. Isn't that interesting? His life is built around fish. And who shows up? The fishmaster. So the fishmaster from Galilee, calling the son of Jonah with the sign of Jonah. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. That's that's our guy here. His name is Peter to most of us. And asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. He's going to give Peter a sign. He says, come on, I've just preached. Now I want to show you my authority. Let's go out into the deep. Set down your nets. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Doesn't that sound like us? Look, I've tried to overcome sin. I've tried to deal with my lust problem. I've tried to deal with my fear and anxiety issues. I've toiled a lot. He says, let down the net. The interesting thing about Peter is he's very different than Jonah. Peter receives the word of the Lord, whereas Jonah rejected it. Peter becomes literally the great Jonah of his day. I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary when you understand the lineage of this man. But what is the language being spoken to him? It's the language of fish. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats... They filled two boats with it so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, listen to what he says. You see, something is being communicated to Peter, to Simon, the son of Jonah. What is it? It's a sign of Jonah. I know that sounds strange, but it's, he's greater than the fish. That's the sign that's coming to him. And what does he say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. See, something about this astonished Simon, son of Jonah. You see, when the fish are mastered, and any of you that are fishermen could probably attest to this fact that, you know, if someone got into your boat and you'd been fishing for weeks on end and hadn't caught a thing, and then he comes in and says, no, right there. You look back at him and say, whoa, even the winds and waves are underneath his control. Even the fish... Heed him at his command. What does it say of Jonah's great fish? God commanded him to spit it up. Even the great fish is under his command. And they, what's the response? And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Whoever this guy is, he has mastery over the fish. You see, I don't know if you have been so astonished as Peter, son of Jonah. Have you seen his mastery over the flesh? Have you seen that that which has controlled you, that you toil day and night to try and overcome, and yet you can't? Have you recognized his superiority? Have you checked the grave lately? Come, come and see where he once lay. He defeated it. The lineage of the church, this is extremely fascinating. The power of the flesh, sin is in the house, okay? Because you could call it the power of the fish if we were Ninevites. The great flesh-revering citizens. You see, Nineveh revered the fish, But we revere the flesh. It's one powerful dude. There's no way you could ever overcome it. All of us have tried. And that's the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Amittai, the father of Jonah, the truth. Jesus has come. And what has he given? He's given the dove, the Holy Spirit. Jonah, the son of Amittai. And Simon then is known as the son of Jonah. You know what Simon even means? Shimon? It means to be receptive. So that when the truth comes, you receive it. What does Peter do that Jonah didn't? Jonah hardened, but the son of Jonah receives it. And what you have is the heritage of the church within Jesus. When Jesus says, you, Simon, son of Jonah, are Petros. You are rock. You see, Peter is the son of Jonah. And that means rock-like. So you and me, we're also in this story. We're in the lineage. 
those who strangely relate to this bizarre story, how do we have anything to do with this lineage? Well, we're a part of that church. And so we're the receptive being made rock-like. It's known as the church of Jesus Christ. It's the lineage of Amittai and Jonah, of those that dwell in Galilee. That's our lineage. It's known as Jesus Christ. We've been grafted in to the lineage. Come. Come, all of us. Come. I know you've been controlled by this fish flesh for so long. But it's the first day of the week, and I have something to announce. Come. And so we all go on our journey and say, do you see these footprints? Uh Uh-huh. Those are Jonah's footprints. You see that? Yeah, that's where he was spit out. And you see that. And everyone looks like, what's that smell? Uh Uh-huh. You see that fish has been sitting there for a few days, and it's starting to stink. You see, that stink is a great smell for us. It's the stink of the empty tomb, if you want to say it that way. It's the stink of death defeated. It's the stink of sin decapitated. Now, we don't just need to hang out there and smell it. I'd say, put it behind us, let's move on. But we need to recognize it. Come, come and see the stinking fish. He is defeated. His mouth propped open, proving that the one known as God Almighty is greater than that which controls you. Come, See the place where the Lord lay. He's not here. Where is he? Well, he's not here. You actually think he'd still be here? Didn't he tell you that in three days he would rise again? Well, yeah, but I mean, I thought that was like symbolically. No, it's very real. You see, the grave is your great fear. You're controlled by sin, darkness, death in the grave. And the flesh rules you. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't need to anymore. So we become the messengers that run through the city of Sinevites, Sineva, and we declare the fish is dead. It's stinking on the shores of the Tigris. We announce that the grave is empty. It's open and the grave has no answers. It can't even defend itself. And we come up to us and say, were you defeated? It's like, it can't even talk back. It's just defeated. It has no answer. It is no more. The enemy is destroyed. So they ran both together. This is speaking of Peter and John. And John is writing. And the other disciple did outrun Peter. So he's actually sort of bragging a little, saying, I did outrun him. (laughs) And came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying. Yet went he not in. So he arrived first. He he somehow decides to make that clear (laughs) in the story. Yeah, I got there first. But I peered in, and I saw the linen clothes, but I didn't go in. So then Peter comes chugging up. He was supposedly, even in history, a huge fisherman. Yet when he not in, then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Listen to this line. Then went in also that other disciple. So John comes in. So this is sort of the way I look at it. It's like Peter comes in. Peter, you know who he is. But then there's someone else that comes in, sort of like us. It could be one minute later. It could be, I mean, it could be 10 seconds later. It could be one minute later. It could be 2,000 years later. But there's someone else there. And we show up and we walk in. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw. Listen to this, what it says. He saw. What did he see? He saw where the Lord lie. Why would that make any difference? He saw. It doesn't just the big stone rolled away, say it. No, he saw. What did he see? He saw the stinking fish. He saw the grave close. It's impossible. Wait a minute. He saw, and what does it say? And believed. He saw and believed. Come. Come, I want to show you something. I want to show you where the Lord lie. And he doesn't lie anymore. He's not here. He's alive. We are, though we celebrate the resurrection from the dead every single day. That's our life as Christians. We reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive. But alive in Jesus Christ. We have newness of life in Christ Jesus. That's present tense. It's not just an eternal life that we will find upon our death in this mortal body. It is a life that actually is available to us now, indwelling. It's his life. 
He is the conqueror. Our life is meant to be swallowed up in that victory. When he died on that cross, we have the privilege of entering into his work. And we climb in. And when we believe in Jesus, in a sense, we are in Christ. And when he dies, our old man, our flesh, that creature, that fish that has ruled us, is crucified. And that's what Paul says. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. You see, when he was buried, we are buried. And the old life is no more. Nevertheless, I live. What's Paul saying? But I raised again. There's newness of life. Yes, I'm crucified with him, but I live. The stone is rolled away. The grave is defeated. It is defeated. So for those of you that have never gone out of your way and run after Peter and John to say, hey, I need to see what they're looking at. You see, the disciples saw something, and it turned them into world changers. They saw something. And that something is available for you to see, too, even 2,000 years later. Because the witness, the one that runs throughout the city, is known as the Holy Spirit. And he's crying, he is not here. You see, he is the witness to us of the great redemptive work of Jesus Christ on that cross. And the great triumph over sin and death. The grave is empty. And so, even though we celebrate this every day, I want us to celebrate it with an extra mustard today. And I think it's really special that we're going to have baptisms afterwards, because what better way to celebrate than with a symbol of it? Dead in sin. Dead to sin. Dead to all that old life. Rising again to newness. The symbol of it is going to be cherished amongst all of us today. But for those of you that haven't seen it, I want you to go out of your way today. Allow the Holy Spirit to take you by the hand and say, come, I want to show you something. He no longer is here. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellersley.com. Again, that website is www.ellersley.com. For Ellersley Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.